Turn in the Word of God this morning, beloved, to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. mind there's stamped that victory of the resurrection. That's the intention. We come today to sit at a table established by one who died and rose again from the dead. Never forget it. He did the impossible. He did what could not be done. He entered into death and he rose again from the dead. And because of that, we have all the hope all the hope that we could ever desire concerning this life and the life to come. It's absolutely crucial that we live our lives in light of a risen Redeemer. And perhaps I can speak then just a, a mini-sermon before the actual sermon. Live this year as if you believe Christ is risen from the dead. Make sure that's constantly in your view. I'm going to read one verse. I will look at the passage in its context with you, but setting this text before you, the final verse of 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain, in the Lord. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May we receive it as the Lord intended here by faith in our hearts today. Let's pray. Lord, we come to this time where we consider the word of God and expound upon it. And as we endeavor and desire to lay out encouragement for the year ahead. We need much help. We pray for the coming down of thy presence. We ask, O God, that thou wilt take what is thine to bless. And as the Lord Jesus did when he took the loaves and the fishes and divided them, broke them and distributed them, may it be the same with the very word of God today. Take what is thine, Lord Jesus, and distribute as there is need. May there be even an abundance that goes beyond what is needed here. May we be taken to places where our souls are so satisfied we might say this day it is enough. Oh God, bless us. Give us much of your spirit today, preparing our hearts to sit at this table which Christ has ordained for our good. That the eye of faith may seize upon the emblems and be further strengthened by the victory that he has accomplished. Come, Lord Jesus, bless thy church. Command blessings despite the enemy and do good unto Zion, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last number of weeks, I have been praying and thinking about this Lord's Day in consideration of whether or not the Lord would have a particular text for the congregation at the outset of the year. And almost from the beginning, my mind was latched in upon this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. I don't know why. It certainly has been a text that has left an impression 
on my life in the past. And in fact, as I thought back, uh, my own pastor, the Reverend David Park, I think, and I, I, I would need to ask him to confirm this, but I think the first model text of 20, 2003, which was my first year entering in as a Christian, my first time hearing a text at the head of a year, was indeed 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It's a text that really has driven his ministry, one he refers to regularly, and that he has preached as a model text on a number of occasions. I think almost on a, every decade or so he turns back to this, because as I look to see whether on Sermon Audio the history of that church in Balamone goes back to 03, it doesn't, but I did see the text is there in 2013, and then again in 2023, last year as well. And then this morning, as I was just preparing and so on, and I went on to Facebook and I saw his video, he has a video every Lord's Day morning that he puts up on my home church's Facebook page, and I saw the video, and he was giving a word of encouragement from this text at the outset of the year, and I just took that as confirmation and encouragement that we're on the right line for ourselves here today. It is a powerful text, and those of you who are young, who have yet to maybe find a text that you can say, this is a life verse for me, this is a verse that I would write next to my name, could do worse than turn to this text. In fact, you would struggle to improve on 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And yet I have never preached on it before. I've never taken this text and, and, and given consideration to it, but I hope to do that today with the Lord's help. If ever there was a sermon that was heavy on doctrine and then finally kind of gives expression to what the implications are in very concise ways, it is this one here. The apostle in this epistle to the Corinthian church has dealt with a number of issues. Many of you know this. He's addressing concerns and problems that have been raised before him, and he, he makes his way logically through all of those issues. And he comes then to the final section where he addresses the, the final issue to deal with, incorrect thinking about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he takes what you can see for yourself is a long chapter, 58 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. And the better part of it really is just the theology. It's the apostle saying, here is the argument for the resurrection and the assurance of the believer that he must rise. And then he puts in this text. In some ways, it really finishes the entire epistle. There are other issues that he brings up and certain matters that he raises in chapter 16, but the real heart of the message finishes with verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The foundation that has been laid before getting to this point includes the heart of the gospel. Back in verses 3 and 4, you will see that as he speaks. In fact, I'll read from verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received and wherein ye stand. Note that. This idea of standing where in the message they had received. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to 
the Scriptures. He goes on then to deal with other details, the things that they had come to believe, but certain things had, had intervened. Wrong ideas had interjected, at least in the minds of some. Look at verse 12. If Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now this, at least in part, is what is going on. Some in the church were saying there's no resurrection from the dead. And having laid out this argument, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how can you conclude that? And he goes on to elaborate on this, verse 13 and 14. If there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then, our preaching, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. If you conclude there's no resurrection from the dead, the only conclusion from that is that Christ didn't rise. And all that we're saying and all that we have believed is all empty. It's vain. We're preaching in vain. Our faith is vain. It has no ground, no foundation, no warrant. For Paul, this makes no sense at all. The believer's union with Christ is such that since Christ rose from the dead, his people must. They can't not. The whole argument, the whole position of the church is this recognition that the people of God are in Christ, and if He rose from the dead, they must rise from the dead. It makes no sense to Paul to think otherwise. Verse 15 and 16, yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And he's already made mention, I'll not go back to it, that there are many witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. It is historically proven, it is historically historical fact. Above three, 500 saw him. He says that the, the vast majority of them are still alive, basically saying, go and talk to them. We know Christ is alive. We know that he rose from the dead. We know that he ascended up into heaven and was taken out of our vision. We know all of this. You can't conclude then anything but that the people of God must rise with him. If this is not the case again, you see another conclusion, verse 17, if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Verse 18, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Those believers who have gone, they're perished. You have no hope for them. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Think of it. Think of all that they've suffered. Think of all that they've endured. Think of all that they've sacrificed. What miserable creatures they would be to have suffered and endured the hardness of being a believer in the first century if at the end of it there's no resurrection. What a miserable religion. Verse 20, then I'm following, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. This is where he pivots and begins to argue the point. Begins to present it logically. Say, look, this cannot be. Christ raised is the assurance of a harvest. It's the guarantee that his people who are in him also must rise. There is no doubting this. 
For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, and so on and so forth. I can't argue at all. But you, you read through this and you see he's, he's laying this out. The fact, the historical fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead guarantees that everyone believing in him, trusting in him, united to him, must rise bodily. Bodily. They must rise as he rose. They will be absent from the body, present with the Lord, but there will come a time when every single body will rise from the grave, called out by the command of an almighty Christ. It's going to happen. Now this, this is what we say we believe. We affirm this in this church. We have no hesitation to affirm it at all. If anyone denies it, they are not Christian. They are not saved. Other matters are addressed. I'm not going to elaborate too much more, but you can see then he, he brings us then to quote Scripture, the hope of the Old Testament. If you go to, well, let's just read from verse 53. This corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Here he quotes from the prophets, Isaiah and Hosea, pulling two passages together to say this is what we expected. This is what the Old Testament saints look forward to. This is what we look forward to. Now that we see the Messiah has come, we are guaranteed it must come to pass. There is this victory for us. But in light of all this, this is the crunch. In light of all this, it has consequences for your life and for mine. That's where we come to in verse 58. Verse 58 is the apostle basically saying all this doctrine, all this truth means this. Therefore, my beloved brethren, I like that because as he's closing out this letter with a church that is a mess, I mean a mess, this church is a mess. If we were in this church, we would have vacated long ago. We would have rolled our eyes and said enough is enough. I'm out of here, I'll sit at home, I'll do home church or whatever, rather than sit among these people. And yet, Paul never tells them to do that. He just corrects them. He tells them how to set things straight. And he still refers to them as beloved brethren. Beloved brethren. Get that into your soul. See how far the love of Christ extends in the heart of the genuine child of God as it makes us to love even that which at times is remarkably unlovely. <clears throat> Therefore, my beloved brethren, here it is. Here it is. Christ is raised. We will rise. It's absolutely guaranteed. Therefore, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in 
the Lord. I have titled my message, When the Resurrection Governs Your Life. When the Resurrection Governs Your Life, because really that's what the text is saying. It's what it's the conclusion that the apostle is coming to. When you know that Christ is raised and you will rise, then this is how your life gets governed. That's why it's a very helpful life text because it keeps in mind, especially if you can keep in your focus, that it's in light of the resurrection. It's not just the apostle, you know, punching the consciences of the church, telling them to do better. He's simply saying, brothers, if we believe this, if we believe this, this is how we must live. I think you could argue that the apostle had this as really a life text for him. This is how he concludes it. This is what drove him. So when the resurrection governs your life, if you remember three words, focus, fervor, faith. Focus, fervor, faith. First, it renews focus. It renews focus. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable. This focus, this language of focus, I considered in two ways. The words really aren't all that dissimilar. Steadfast, unmovable. I mean, they're completely distinct, but their, their sense, their meaning isn't, there isn't a great chasm between the two of them. But I think you can notice a little distinction here. First, this focus, this renewed focus is manifested as resolve, steadfast, steadfast. The word in this form is found only three times in the New Testament. The idea is to be seated, to be settled, to be anchored. That's how we have it here. Paul is saying, in light of the resurrection, we are seated. Now remember, go back to the beginning of the chapter and how he spoke. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. This kneeled down position, this seated position is not sitting idly doing nothing, but it's in the context of the gospel. It is saying this message that has been preached and that you have received, you, you, you make sure you stay kneeled into that truth. Don't budge, don't move, don't deviate at all. This is where you are. Keep and focus this. Don't allow some man to come and say, well, Jesus rose from the dead, but we're not going to because you've adopted certain Greek philosophy or other philosophical ideas of the first century or any other century that find it hard to reconcile how the material might die and then rise again from the dead because that was part of what they were struggling with. They were looking at things philosophically. It's like people looking and saying, well, how did the world come to be? God spoke and it came in. There must be something to it. There has to be certain equations that must be given. Some way of, of, of recognizing this in this material world and giving an equation that makes sense to our minds. But there's some things that God does that there's no equation for except but God. And when it comes to bringing this very world into existence, there isn't an equation for Bringing it into from nothing and bringing everything out of nothing. It doesn't exist. It's just God out of nothing, making everything. And all very good. So it is with the resurrection. You can't cause cells that are dead, decayed, 
into the ground, scattered, eaten by worms and whatever else, all brought together in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, will come together at the command of Christ. You can't logic, logically argue how that's going to work out, except that you know that God who made all things of nothing will also do the same or similar in terms of the resurrection of the body. So they're being influenced by the philosophy of their day. And Paul is saying, be steadfast. So let me make this applicable to you. Whatever silly nonsense arises in 2024 that militates against the gospel of Christ, you reject it. Whatever nonsense is out there, anything, I don't care what it is, you must stand firm and resolved in what is true. And I don't care who propagates it, I don't care how much support in the past you've given to them, whatever, anything that deviates, though if we are an angel, come preaching any other gospel, God's curse is upon them. So you nail yourself down in the gospel. This is life and death. This is what Christ gave himself for. Don't you deviate from it. It's manifested as resolve, steadfast. It's manifested also as resistance. You only have one use of this word, unmovable, in the New Testament. It's right here, obviously. So this immovable, uh, this language here is the idea of being firm. It is the negative form of, of, of moving away. So if you're trying to describe moving away, this is it put in the negative. It's not moving away. It's not going to move away. So it's a similar idea to being seated or settled, but you have it put in a different form using different language. Not to be moved from its place, to be unmoved, to be firmly persistent is the idea. Unmovable. And this gets to the same thing. You're taking your stand on the gospel. You're not going to be moved. You're anchored in. You're settled. This is life and death. Someone comes with a gun and says, deny the literal bodily resurrection of the Son of God. You say, give me the bullet. Every day of the week, you're resolved. This, this is not a matter of negotiation. This is not something that we sit and we discuss whether or not that these things are really important. The, this is the crux of the issue. And Paul is saying, you stood there when you heard it preached. Stay standing. Don't deviate. And that resolve that you had when first converted, that sense of appreciation for the death and resurrection of Christ must be where you stay and harden become even more hardened in the knowledge of it, in your conviction regarding it. You children, you children, you must recognize these things are true and take them, appropriate them, believe them, have them rest in your own heart. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived and died and rose again. And you believe it. And be prepared to suffer for it. So the apostle here renews our focus. And there are many things that are going to come and try to take you away my mind went this morning just reviewing my notes to the parable of the sower. I just looked again at the things that are said there in Luke 8 that ruin the fruitfulness of the seed. Temptations, cares, riches, pleasures. These things move you away. Temptations. You endure temptations, but it's hard to endure temptations. And so you relent 
You have the cares of the world and it so swallows you up that you begin to maybe doubt the goodness of God or you just become careless. Riches certainly brings a carelessness, a prosperity, the pleasures of this world being so easily accessed by most of us today ruin the soul, move you away from the gospel. So it renews focus. Secondly, it renews fervor. Fervor. Now in looking at this fervor that is we have in the, this text, I want us to see the what of it, the how of it, and the when of it. The what, the how, and the when. And we're going to work backwards. Because he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Right? Let's work back. The work of the Lord. That's the what. That's the what of the fervor. That's what you're giving yourself to. That's what he's saying, engage in. He's calling you to take this on board. Now, he's <clears throat> dealt with the work of God in the epistle and other places. For example, 1 Corinthians 3. If you go back there, you might remember 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13. We'll read from there. <clears throat> Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive reward. If any man's work shall not, or if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So you have language here regarding work, work for the Lord, that being tested. Go to chapter 9, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? So it's a very, there's a, there's a narrow ministry focus in what Paul has in mind here, working for the Lord. One commentator puts it this way, by labor is meant Christian ministry above all, but probably also includes any activity that would be undertaken out of commitment to Christ, especially any activity that is burdensome. That is, any activity that one would not naturally engage in were it not for their faith in Christ. So, the work of the Lord is work you wouldn't be doing except for the fact that you're converted. You're saved. You know Christ. So when we can think of many things we can do for the Lord, you go up every day and you go to your work, you do that for the Lord. There may be a sense in which part of that is the work of the Lord. There is a general calling to provide for your own. If any man provide not, he is worse than an infidel and hath denied the faith. I get it, and I think you can look at it in the breadth that that's legitimate. But I do think there's a general focus here, generally looking at this, things you would not do, except the grace of God is in your heart, and you've been changed by the gospel. This work of the Lord is something which commences with conversion and continues until death. This is a work without retirement. Our Lord Jesus is the example here, isn't he? For Christ, the work of the Lord meant the will of the Father. John 6, 38, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. That's what he was all about. 
For him, that was the work of the Lord. So what did he do? Well, boys and girls, Luke 2.51, he obeyed his parents as a youth. Again, that sort of broadens out the work of the Lord, but I want you to feel included here. There are things for you to do. He obeyed his parents as a youth. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them, Luke 2.51. But getting into his ministry, you see the specific things Christ did. And there are many that could be referred to, but I'm looking at just the obvious ones. He maintained personal prayer through busyness. Luke 5, 16, and he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. The sense there, it's not quite captured in the English translation, but the sense is he, he was doing this regularly. He was often doing this. Withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. So he maintained personal prayer through busyness. He organized a school of prayer with his disciples. In reference to the Garden of Gethsemane. And that being a place of prayer, John 18, 2, Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. And we know he went up times to places, took the disciples with him. He conducted regular preaching. Luke 8, verse 1, he went throughout every city and village preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. He visited homes when he was invited. Luke 5, 29, Levi made him a great feast in his own house. Luke 14, verse 1, he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day. He practiced holiness through suffering. This is highlighted by Peter in 1 Peter 2, verses 20 and following. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God, for even hereunto were ye called... Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Through all the suffering, he performed no sin. It wasn't even found in a speech. So he was doing the work of the Lord. Jesus Christ was steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of of the Lord. He knew what that work was. And we can't pray thy kingdom come without recognizing our part in bringing it to pass. Our little place within that kingdom work. The Lord Jesus had specific things that he did. And so we, in every season of life, in good conscience before God, should be able to say, here is the work of the Lord that I am doing. The work of the Lord. The text doesn't allow, as we'll see in just a moment, it doesn't allow for taking vacations from this, does it? It doesn't allow for saying that's for a, for a very narrow period or for a narrow type of person. Always abounding in the work of the Lord is for the church. There's something every believer, and this plays on what we preached on a couple of weeks ago, looking at gifting and recognizing that we all have differing gifts, but we have a work to do. Every Christian's a servant, right? And every servant has something to do. It's as simple as that. So we can 
be pious and saying, I'm the servant of the Lord, but what does that look like? The work of the Lord. Paul says that if you get the resurrection, then this is how you spend your life in the work of the Lord. There has to be something you're doing. Something you do for the Lord. Something that distinguishes you from the heathen. So that's the what of your fervor. The work of the Lord, right? It's for everybody. Every one of us. The work of the Lord. Then the how. The how of your fervor. How are you to go about it? Abounding. That's what it says. Abounding in the work of the Lord. The word abounding has the idea of something that can, well, if it's used within the context of something that can be measured, then the idea is that it's over and above what is needed. So it's excess, it's abundance, that's the sense of it. More than what might be expected is the the sense of it. So the attitude towards the work of the Lord is having this energy and zeal and interest that is over and above what might be expected So you have the work of the Lord, and then you're abounding in it. You're abounding in it, like you're adding. The man asks you to go with him one mile, go with him twain. That's the kind of idea that's there. It's like, what, what more can I do here? The Lord Jesus understood this. It was pressing on his life, John 9, 4. <clears throat> I must work the works of him that sent me While it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. That sense of a termination to this particular aspect of his work pressed him in to be abounding in the work of the Lord. He understood Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whether thou goest. So, abounding in the work of the Lord. Finally, the when. When are you to do this? Always. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. At all times. No escaping this. There's no no escaping this. The the apostle is is hemming the church in. He's giving them no way out. This is the gospel, beloved. Oh, beloved brethren. This is what we believe. This is where we stand. You stood there when you first heard me preach the gospel. You received it. And you stand. You stay standing there. But in your standing there, you're not idle. You're not just standing on the gospel. That's how some, I fear, live their lives. Christ has died for me. He rose again from the grave. I have all these spiritual blessings in Christ. They are purchased by the blood of the Lamb. They are mine. I have them. They can never be taken from me. I can't be severed from his love. This is mine. And you stand there, but you've missed part of the text. There's the work of the Lord that you are to abandon always. Always. Some of us, we serve sporadically, even the best of us. We know it, don't we? <laughs> we know it. Well, I have to do this. 
You have that sense of duty and compulsion. You do your duty. But, but you lose at times that over and above, don't you? I do. I do. I do. <coughs> it's like I'm doing what I need to do. Sometimes it's like I'm feeling myself energized to do over and above. And sometimes that isn't there. What Paul is saying is, if you really know that Christ is risen, and you believe you'll rise from the dead, then that compulsion will be there. So that you, you feel that energizing of the gospel. You young people, one of your biggest mistakes is not recognizing early how much the work of the Lord is key to your life. In the gaining of your independence, there is the right and the privilege to be about the work of the Lord. You have to understand that early. What's going to happen to you is you're going to grow up and you maybe get married and have children and you'll want, you may not think about it now, but one day you will, you'll want your children to be zealous for the Lord. In fact, you will look at everything you own, every cent you have, and you say, I'd gladly trade every dime if all my children were zealous for Christ. That's where you'll get to. But one of the most important things for you to invest in that future, which will be your goal, is to right now in your life be about the work of the Lord. You yourself modeling it so that you can talk to them in terms you understand of what it's like to be 20 and about the work of the Lord. What it's like to be 22 and 24 and have exams and still have the work of the Lord as a focus in your life. One of the biggest mistakes of maturity, when we are cumbered a little more with with bills and responsibility in our places of work and employment that press us, salaried positions that require us perhaps to work longer hours at different seasons and all of that. One of the biggest mistakes is not recognizing how much we can do, how much work of the Lord can be done one-to-one. How you can invest. I've mentioned this before. I, 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 it's like because I know some of you are like trying to find little windows because that's all you have. That's all you have. You're, 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 you're in your 40s, you're maybe in your 50s, and you're just like there's a lot of responsibility, a lot that you're dealing with. And I'm saying to you, you need to, to see there's a work of the Lord that you can still abound in always, even one-to-one in the little moments you have for, for lunch, for coffee, whatever it is, and you can work, you can employ that time for the Lord by pouring into others. The biggest mistake for seniors, certainly one of them, is not recognizing that there must be an added investment into prayer that was not possible in your years of busyness. There must be. 
to pray with the kind of time that you have once retired the way you did when you were as busy as you ever were is to not rightly assess the season of your life and is to waste the precious time that you have. Now, you can argue, you get before the Lord and ask him, what is the work of the Lord when you really don't have the energy to, you know, the abounding looks different, right? <laughs> the abounding isn't quite, you know, carried along by this youthful physical energy, right? You don't have that. But you can, you can control your time a little more. Like you can have, let, let's say, more hours or moments of prayer through the day. You can say, okay, uh, just before lunch, I'm going to carve out this time. I'm going to pray for missionaries that day. I'm going to pray for the students at the seminary. That There, there are ways in which you can be about the work of the Lord in ways you could not. You just simply couldn't. Your mind was filled. Your schedule was filled. You couldn't have possibly faithfully exercised that kind of work. But now you can. And that's what I'm saying. Harness 2024 for the Lord. Realize you can invest your time better. Which brings us then, finally, to faith. The faith that we have here in this text. Look at it, beloved. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We've seen the focus, we've seen the fervor, now we see the faith. How do you do this? How do you live this way? And again, it's, it's <laughs> just to state it, Paul is lifting this up, is saying this is what we're meant to do in light of the resurrection, in the light of our own resurrection. But let me just throw in another text. Philippians 3, where is it, about verse 17 or so? I count not myself to have apprehended. Paul doesn't feel himself to have arrived. He's not writing in the saying, I've... Now, he's able to say, in comparison to the rest of the apostles, I labored more than them all. But he still didn't count himself to have apprehended. He's not quite there. He hasn't perfected everything. But he is setting at this, as this, this lofty objective. You're not going to get to the end of 2024 and say, I live this text perfectly. So just eliminate that, right? Just, just forget about the sense of disappointment that comes because you feel like you didn't live it out perfectly. You're not going to. You're not going to. But that doesn't take away from the objective, from the desire, from the longing of soul to rightly live for the Lord's glory. And so this renewal of faith, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, how, how are you to live this way? How do you do this? How do you lock yourself into God's calling on your life? How do you maintain the diligence that fulfills the text to some degree? How do you live so as to please your master? There's something you must know. For as much as you know, since you know, he expects the believer to know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You are to be convinced of this. The apostle assumes that Christians know their labor is not in vain. The word labor is the idea of toil. Toil. So it's not there just to decorate the verse. It's, it's, it has a sense of hardship. There's, there's work going on here. 
Every tract given, every card of encouragement written, every meal made, every dollar sacrificed, every song sung, every prayer offered, every text sent, every lesson or sermon studied and delivered, every new mom supported, every senior visited, every floor cleaned, every nose wiped, every tear checked, on and on it goes, is labor. And where I get encouragement regarding even the breadth of the reward that comes here is from what our Lord Jesus taught us himself. Matthew 10, 42. Whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. A cup of cold water. Paul believes every Christian knows there is reward. That labor is not in vain. Why? Because no one did a better job of clearing up that understanding than our Lord himself. If you do it in my name, with an aim for God's glory, it's, it's, it's legitimate labor that will be rewarded So you have also Matthew 25, 40. The king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. So, what you are to see then is this. Because I think this is what the apostle's getting at. Listen. Christ rose from the dead. That's fact. Paul then argues through the, te- through the passage, those who believe in him, those who trust in him, also will rise to life with him. They, they will be changed and transformed and they will be made like unto him. This is, this is, tr- this is to your encouragement, right? This is not the end. You're going to rise. This body of yours is going to be raised and put on incorruption. Then what? You'll stand in your body to receive reward from Christ. That's where the connection comes. You in your body glorified, will stand to receive rewards from Christ. That's why this is so important. That's why Paul is saying, this is why you live this way. You believe this. So he's saying, you, you do believe this. For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He rose and is receiving reward for what he did. This table reminds us in very visible, a very visible way that labor is not in vain. Labor that is done for God is not in vain. 
That's what you're seeing here. It's saying, the, it's, it's, it's preaching to you, child of God, the victory of Christ's work and the reward for his sufferings. Paul is arguing, you also will rise. You also be, will be rewarded greatly. You know this. This is why then we, it motivates it, doesn't it? It bolsters our faith for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Our Lord Jesus understood it. That's why he persisted so steadfastly. And others have followed him. Robert Moffat, Scottish missionary to Africa, He said, oh, that I had a thousand lives and a thousand bodies. All of them should be devoted to no other employment but to preach Christ to these degraded, despised, yet beloved mortals. Give me a thousand lives, a thousand bodies. I will do the work I am doing. Why? He knew his labor was not in vain in the Lord. He wasn't hedging his bets. You give me a thousand lives, I'll put a hundred of them over here, and a hundred of them over there, and a hundred of them, and divide all, just to make sure, make sure, it's, it's well, you've, you've got a well, <laughs> a well diversified investment, right? Diversification. Not when it comes to the work of the Lord. It's all in on him and his work. Another Scottish missionary, John Patton, as you like to say, Patton, he remarked, Among many who sought to deter me was one dear old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument always was, The cannibals! You'll be eaten by cannibals! At last I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can live, if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. Where is that spirit? God help us. God help us. We live so safely, don't we? Keep everything safe. Try to keep it safe. Do away, do away with all the kind of safety that holds you back from always abounding in the work of the Lord. In the language of 1 Chronicles 29, 5, who then is willing to consecrate his service this day unto the Lord? Have you consecrated your life afresh this year? Have you? 
you said, Lord, I am very grateful and thankful for the last year. I'm very thankful for all that you've done for me. And at the commencement of this year, in dead earnest and by your grace, I say with Isaiah, here am I. Here am I. Send me. Now you go from this place. You're going to go. And the doctrine of the resurrection and your own resurrection compels you to do something with what we've considered. I can do no better than to take the language of the apostle and appeal before you, beloved congregation, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, for it is your reasonable service. Let's bow together in prayer. Take these moments. You're going to sit and remember the Lord who died for you. Had he been as half-hearted as you or me, then we certainly would be the most miserable creatures on earth. And yet we are a happy people today and we're happy because Christ did not give up. He did not take the easy road. And we get to enjoy and reap the benefits of what he has done. And sit at this table in the presence of our enemies and rejoice. Lord, bless thy word. Make it ring and have an impact in every life. Do what glorifies thy name. If utterances have been given that are ill-advised, let that fall to the ground. But let that which is honourable in thy holy presence, let it penetrate, let it motivate. Be with us now as we consider Christ in the way he has appointed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.